Round of applause. Get here super early, stay through all the services, do just such good work. Um, Eli Weissel, perhaps you've never heard his name, but you will uh, understand why I mention it in just a moment. Eli Weissel uh, was a Jew who survived the Holocaust. He came eventually to the United States, and when he did, he uh, set up a foundation and began a work to help uh, Jewish uh, Americans uh, who had gone through similar and difficult circumstances. Uh, Weissel would eventually earn a Nobel Peace Prize for his work. His work was nothing short of remarkable. He would build uh, what for us would be a small fortune in, uh, uh, in work and also start a foundation that would have millions of dollars. His personal uh, savings uh, amounted to $12 million. His uh, uh, foundation had $15 million in assets. And Weissel, who endured such remarkable hostility uh, from uh, Hitler and his regime, would undergo another trial that would be quite different, yet devastating to him. You see, he was introduced to one he uh, thought was a friend, and the person who introduced them introduced them as a friend, but indeed, this person would not be a friend to Weissel his name, Bernie Madoff. If you've uh, known any business news in this country, you know that Bernie Madoff is, uh, the, was the mastermind of the largest Ponzi scheme ever in the history of our country. A scheme that, as I recall, uh, uh, he he squandered $65 billion of assets that belonged to other people. Ponzi schemes work. You rob Peter to pay Paul. You take from initial investors and pay new ones coming in until you pay no one and you have made off with their money. And that's what he did. Weissel lost $12 million of his personal savings. His foundation lost their $15 million in uh, funds they had accumulated. Here's what he had to say about Bur Mur uh, uh, Madoff. He said he's one of the greatest scoundrels, thieves, liars, and criminals to ever live. Weissel was deceived he was duped. And I'm here to say to you this morning that you may be too. It's not a Ponzi scheme, but it's a scheme much older and operated by the master deceiver himself, Satan. Saul fell to that scheme. Saul was deceived. He was completely deceived, blinded, Duped, bamboozled, fooled, hoodwinked, played. Whatever word you want to use, Saul was killing Christians and thought he was doing God's work. Don't let that get lost on you. 
He was killing Christians and thought he was doing the work of God. Luke describes it this way, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You say, well, how could I be deceived Your good works may be good, but they may not be God's works. Your faithfulness may be commendable, but not Christ-like. Your knowledge may be admirable, but not helpful. It is possible to be utterly and totally deceived. And so that begs the question, number one, are you deceived into thinking that whatever you're doing is God's work when it isn't? And number two, how does God undo Satan's deceptive work in people's hearts? How does he undo Satan's deceptive work in people's hearts? We see here, I would say this is not an exhaustive list of how God does it, but it is how he did it with Saul. Number one, he shines a light. Paul is confronted by a bright light but Jesus' words, his first words to Saul are not a command, They're a question. Notice how he addresses him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Don't miss how personal this is. He calls him by name. He mentions Saul's name. He knows Saul, but Saul doesn't know him. And Saul looks at him and asks him the question, who are you, Lord? Don't allow the phrase Lord to get to be too much here. It simply means sir. Saul says, who are you talking to me through this bright light? And Jesus answers and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, this is Luke's account. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and this is Luke's account, most likely told to him personally by Saul. And and Luke traveled and heard Saul, who became Paul, tell this again and again. He knew the story. But if you look at all of Saul's writings, you will discover that this was not his first encounter at all with God. As a matter of fact, Saul describes himself as kicking against the goads. So what is a goad? G-O-A-D. It's a cattle prodder. Saul describes himself as being, in a sense, prodded by God, that, that God kept prodding him, and he pushed against it. He didn't want to go into the fence, if you will. He didn't want to go into the gate. 
So it begs the question, what were Paul's goads? What were they? Well, uh, there were three uh, that we will name today, perhaps more. The first, doubts. To him, Jesus was an imposter. Kogan, in his commentary on uh, uh, Paul, says this, Is it not possible, indeed highly likely, that the young teacher from Galilee and the younger Pharisee from Tarsus, so that Jesus and Saul would have looked into one another's eyes and that Saul would have heard Jesus teach? He's not so far disconnected from Jerusalem that he perhaps heard Jesus in person teach this Saul. Saul Jesus as an imposter. He chose not to follow him. He chose to kick against the goads. He leaned into his doubt of who Jesus was, but there was a second. His name was Stephen. You see, Saul was there when Stephen gave his speech to the Sanhedrin. By this point, Stephen has, uh, uh, Saul has risen up to be a member of that 70-member Sanhedrin court. Stephen stands up, preaches the gospel, defends Christ from the Old Testament. Saul hears it, and they work themselves into a frenzy, and it is Saul who steps out and holds the coats of those who stone Stephen to death. Saul saw Stephen's face light up. He saw Stephen have this vision of heaven and Jesus standing to receive him as he was dying. I happen to think as Saul traveled from Jerusalem up through Galilee into Damascus that Stephen's face was the proverbial rock in his sandal. And with every step he took, he thought of Stephen's glowing face and wondered, am I doing the work of God? Stephen's face was like a goad and he kicked against it. Doubt. Stephen. And the third goad, sin. Saul, now Paul, in Romans 7, describes his struggle with sin, and in particular, covetousness. He was an ambitious sort of man. He wanted what others had. He struggled with sin, Lest you only think of him as Saint Paul, he called himself the chief of sinners. Lest you somehow elevate him in your mind to someone above sin or above struggle, he struggled vehemently against his own sinful nature. And Romans 7 is almost like a personal journal that he writes about his struggle. I'm going to say to you this morning, I could be the most convincing orator. I could be the greatest communicator of all time and have not nary one capacity to shine the light on you. God will have to do that. 
It is God who will shine the light into your world and reveal deception. I can't do that. And until he does, you will kick against the goads, whatever they may be. God shines a light, but he not only shines a light. Secondly, if God's going to unveil the deception in your life, he uses instruments of grace. He uses people. There is another person who demonstrates God's relentless pursuit of Saul. His name is Ananias. Someone has called him the greatest unsung hero of the Bible. Verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I love how God tells Ananias to do what Saul has already seen that he's going to do. Don't you love that? God has already seen that Saul is going to do it, but I love how God tells Ananias to do what Saul is already go, uh, what Saul knows he's going to do. But Ananias answered, "Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name." Ananias looks at him and said, "This is a death wish. This is a total death wish." If I go to Saul, Saul's here to take people like me, put me, lock me up, and eventually have me killed. You're asking me to go see him? But you see, when Saul was struck by that bright light, when he was, and he was completely blinded by that light, his friends, his, his, his cohorts had to take him on into Damascus. He couldn't see to walk. But notice what God says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. All right, so this word instrument, what does it mean? The word instrument in the Greek is utensil. Yeah, it's an eating utensil. I don't think we would much prefer, prefer to be uh, named or called this. No, we'd much rather, it says he is a chosen Stradivarius violin. He is a chosen Steinway piano. He is, he is a chosen Larave guitar. No, it's none of those things. He's a chosen fork. That's what he means. That's what the word means. He's a chosen spoon. He's a chosen knife. He's an instrument. My wife, Wendy, makes really good fried chicken. It's really good. It's moist on the inside and crispy on the outside and has just the right amount of seasoning. And over the years, hundreds of people have come through our home and they've sat at our table or outside or most of them college students and they have eaten Wendy's fried chicken. Do you know what not a single one of them has said? 
Many of them have commented on the fried chicken and how good it was, but not one of them. I've never sat at my table and heard a person say, oh, Miss Wendy, that's what they call her. Oh, Miss Wendy, this fried chicken is amazing. What kind of frying pan do you use? Why? Who cares about the frying pan? No, it's the fried chicken that is the hero of the day, right? It's the fried chicken. The point is that you and I are not the point. That's the point. You and I are not the point. The point is that Ananias isn't the point. And the point is that Saul will not be the point. Saul's going to be a fork. Ananias is a spoon. You might be a knife. We're all just utensils in God's great work. A KitchenAid mixer, a frying pan, a really good spatula is only as good as the hand that uses it. This is God's call on Saul, and it's his call on you too. To do his work, to be his instrument at home, at work, at Columbia, Carolina, at Baxter, on the ball court, in your doctor's office, at McDowell Tech, at Montreat. Ananias and God had a back and forth But verse 17 says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the spirit. Ananias was a willing instrument. I love what he calls Saul, brother. He hasn't preached a sermon. Saul hasn't written one of his epistles. He's not hopped on a boat and gone on a missionary journey. He's been struck blind, seen Jesus, obviously has repented, and now he's called brother. Ananias, this unsung hero who does God's work. You see, I don't mean to be sacrilegious here by saying this, but you and I are not Bobby Flay. We're the spatula. God is Bobby Flay. We we want to be LeBron James. No, we're the basketball. God is LeBron James. We want to be Phil Mickelson. No. We're the nine iron. God is Phil Mickelson. We want to be the Michelangelo. No. We're simply the brush in the hand of God who is the Michelangelo. That ought to do two things. Number one, take a lot of pressure off of you. Right away, God will use instruments of grace to do his work. It's not up to you and me to do. It's up to us to be 
he'll do. Verse 18 says, and immediately something like scales fell from his, from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Evidently, Ananias baptized the greatest missionary ever to live. And taking food, he was strengthened. How does God, how does God undo deception he shines a light. He uses instruments of grace. And third, he uses suffering Jesus followers. Please hear me this morning. God will not dupe you. He will not deceive you. He will not pull the wool over your eyes. He will not play you. Look at his call to Saul in verse 16. Ananias, say this to him. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's not how you feel a staff if you're hiring, is it? Hey, come join me. It's going to be very painful. That's not normally how we do things, but it's what God said. I'll show him how he'll suffer. It is no coincidence that some of our people at Grace who serve the most have suffered the most. God will not waste your suffering. John Piper, who wrote the book Classic, Don't Waste Your Life, when diagnosed with cancer, wrote don't waste your cancer. God won't. He, he won't. C.S. Lewis called suffering that megaphone that God uses to rouse a deaf world. This week I sat with a young man new to our church who suffers physically tremendously. He sat and shared in tears about his suffering. And while I knew he could not see what I was seeing, I sat there and thought, oh, God is going to use you. If you only knew how. He's going to use you. In 2020, we, we set a goal that we've not reached and we frankly won't, but yet remains a worthy goal. A hundred new families and individuals who will open their homes, their hearts, and their hands to those in need by hosting or leading life groups, fostering or adopting, leading ministry teams, becoming marriage mentors and counselors, or going on their first mission trip. I've reached out to some of these folks who've done this and to say, tell me about it. Nason and Kelly Banner, who now lead a life group that has four newborns in it. 
a life group of young couples among whom four newborns have been born during COVID. Here's what they said, sharing God's word in a group and applying it to our daily lives is a wonderful experience for several reasons. It helps us with accountability for ourselves, learning God's word more in depth, having trusted and true prayer partners and making lifelong friends. Kevin and Doris Burleson, who sit in this service, stepped up to lead. Kevin writes, I accepted the privilege and opportunity to lead this life group, and it has been good. We have such a diverse group of people. The greatest things that unite us are the love of Christ and the desire to dig into the Word. Patrick and Lisa Ellis opened their home And they said, God called us to offer our home and property to host a group in Old Fort. We have a wonderful range of adults and children who meet on Wednesdays where we fellowship, enjoy each other's company, and grow spiritually together. Mitch and Barbara Gillespie, who sit in this service, Mitch wrote, for me, we love to host and get to know people better and go through life with new friends by sharing the word. You grow so much in a group. Barb writes, for me, it has been sharing my life with others, our Christian life, our personal lives, the good and the trouble. We share our experiences with other believers and non-believers. It makes me stronger in my walk with Christ. Ian Gillen, who sits in this service, wrote, I am so excited to serve as the leader of special needs ministry at Grace because the gospel has no boundaries and it provides me another step into sharing Christ with the population of people who have taught me so much in my life. Travis and Lori Green, who stepped up to lead a life group, we are honored to serve the Lord in this way. It is our desire to grow deep Christian friendships and each of us grow closer to our loving Father. And there's so many more. I don't want you to be deceived or duped. Regardless of what TV evangelists may tell you, at the center of the Christian faith is a suffering servant. His name is Jesus. Don't miss Jesus' first words to Saul. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? I want to share Isaiah's words with you. Perhaps you've read them, but maybe too tritely, or perhaps you never have. So if you'll look at the screen this morning, perhaps seeing them and hearing them, they will sink in. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to what? What's the word? Say it again. What? Him. So who's the Lord and who's him? The Lord is the Father and him is Jesus. It was the will 
of the Lord to crush his son. He, the Father, has put him, Jesus, to grief. When his, Jesus, soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's you. When Jesus was on the cross, you were on his mind. When your guilt weighed on him, he saw Danny and Chris and Michelle and Elizabeth and Allison He, he saw you. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Romans 12, or Hebrews 12 said that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was that joy? Well, that joy was Judy, and that joy was Sue. That joy was Danielle and Jeff and Christy and Kendall and Philip and Jim. That joy was Kathy and Theresa and Alex. He saw you and he was satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That unrighteous was Butch and Scott, and Bobby, and Jackie. And now you, Steve and Paula, are accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquity. There's one question. 
And I will say with all respect to you who are watching by YouTube or Facebook or who are sitting here, there's one answer. The question is, who are you, Lord? That was Saul's question. Who are you, Lord? And there's only one answer that will satisfy your soul and bring to an end the angst of your life and bring you joy unspeakable, full of glory. And that is Ananias's, here I am, Lord. Who are you, Lord? And I must say to you, once you know him, you will want to say, here I am, Lord. Have you ever? Have you ever? Said those words. Lord Jesus. It was the will of the Father to crush you. You were the instrument of all instruments of grace. And from that cross, unthinkably, you saw my face. This is too much. Jesus, you, you just make so much of us. Thank you for shining the light into my deceived heart as a 15-year-old good kid. Thank you for instruments of grace. For sufferers who proclaim loudly a crucified Christ. For those who may be duped, deceived, played, by the enemy, shine the light in your name. Amen. I have a few things this morning for you to know about. The first is our live nativity. Um, is Those tickets become available on November 16th at 8 a.m. That's not tomorrow, but next Monday they'll be available on our website um, for you to be able to pick up. They're free, but...